found in Luke chapter 9. Page 1608, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. We, go, uh, we continue to go then through chapter 9 of Luke, a very important chapter in Luke's gospel. Of course, he was not writing, uh, specifying the chapter numbers and the verses, but uh, as we study Luke, we see that, that this is really a part of the gospel of Luke found in the middle that creates a couple of different hinge points or turning points. Very important chapter in Luke's gospel. Thus, we will read then Luke 9, 10 through 22. This is God's holy word, inspired and inerrant, given to us, his people, for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About five thousand men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The grass withers The flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. The best setting to get to know someone better is around the table at a meal. Most of us don't really know exactly why that is. Perhaps psychologists or sociologists could give us something that's close to the answer. But we just know that there is a special intimacy in sharing a meal together. So when people are coming over to our house, we take time to make preparations for them, maybe break out the nice dinnerware and silverware, to communicate to them that this is an important time for us and we value the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. There is love and devotion that springs out of shared meals, isn't there? Teenage boys can really grow in love for their mothers or whoever it is that is doing the daily cooking for them. 
Mostly because there is a stark contrast between their cravings for food and the ability to prepare it themselves. Young couples want to see whether they are compatible for a lifetime of marriage, and so they will spend a bulk of their time around tables at nice restaurants, sharing their hopes and their dreams, enjoying one another and the opportunity to deepen and grow in their love and their closeness. Imagine one day that you are able to share a meal with someone who has saved your life, a man or a woman who performed some heroic act on your behalf that quite literally saved you from the clutches of death and brought you into the land of the living. You would probably take that opportunity to express your gratitude, to enjoy their company, and to uh, be thankful towards them. For the rest of the Gospel of Luke, from chapter 9 on, eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord is a very important theme. In the context of a meal, Jesus is able to teach us who he is, and that he is able to give his people the food that they need, the sustenance that they need for their pilgrim journey. There's a question brewing in the Gospel of Luke. Who is Jesus? And Luke has been framing the Gospel account to lead us up to this passage exactly, where we hear for the very first time out of the mouth of a human being that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is sent from God. In this story, we see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah because he fills us. He satisfies us. He satisfies the ultimate and eternal needs of all who come to him. When we confess who he is, when we see him rightly as Messiah, we begin to comprehend all that he has done for us. What happens is we increase in love and adoration and wonder of this Jesus. We grow in devotion to our God. It gives us a picture of the Christian life. There's a few themes to pay attention to in this passage. First, we see that the crowds are following Jesus to find their true purpose. Following Jesus to find their true purpose. We see that Jesus fills his people with true food. True food. And then finally, we see that Peter confesses who Jesus is with true faith. True purpose, finding true purpose, filling with true food, confessing true faith. Last week we saw that the twelve were sent out by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They have come back now to report to Jesus all that has been going on. It's probable that they're looking for a little bit of a break. They're ready to withdraw, be by themselves for a little bit. But perhaps it's because they went out and were proclaiming who Jesus was that the crowds have only seemed to get bigger. The Jesus and the apostles, therefore, don't get any downtime at the beginning of our passage. Whatever the feelings of the apostles might be, and we have some evidence in this passage that they were a little bit annoyed with the presence of the crowds, Jesus is always willing to serve and to help all of those who call upon him. So we see here there's another day of teaching and healing. Once the sun begins to set, the twelve see an opportunity to shoo all of the people away, finally, to get some rest so that they can be alone. Verse 12, they say, send the crowd away because we are in a remote place here. This word for remote place is a word that can mean mostly two things, the desert or the wilderness. 
And with this, we are clued in that Luke is doing something that's very significant in his gospel. The desert, the wilderness are very important themes, not only in Luke, but in all of the history of Israel. John the Baptist, of course, was proclaiming the kingdom of God from the wilderness, showing us that the salvation of the kingdom of God was not going to be centered upon an earthly Jerusalem. And Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he showed himself to be faithful in all the ways that Israel was not faithful in the Old Testament, showing us that Jesus is in some sense a new and a better Israel. They hardened their hearts against God. Jesus was faithful when he was tempted. And in today's passage, we see that the hungry people who are following Jesus are much like Israel in the Old Testament, wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus. Thus, what Luke is pointing us to in this passage and in other places later on in Luke is that Jesus has come to make a new and a better Exodus. He has come to liberate his people, to free them from the enslavement to sin, from the shackles of our sinful nature that keep us locked in a land of condemnation and death. So once again, this is a story that shows us how important the work of Jesus Christ is, how significant it is that he has come to proclaim and to establish his kingdom. The people have followed Jesus out into the wilderness, perhaps Uh, not knowing what it is that they are pursuing, but they know that whatever it is that Jesus is giving, that is something that they need. They need the blessing and the life that he gives. It's true, of course, that many people follow Jesus out into the wilderness in this passage because he performs signs and wonders. But it's also true that Jesus has the power to save and to transform the desires and the longings of their hearts. They're following him, following him, perhaps to find their true purpose. Many of them probably do not know it. They do not know the level of the purpose and the fulfillment that is found in Jesus, and yet they still do it. And it's interesting that they follow him to the detriment of worldly fulfillment. We have these people who are willing to sit and to listen to Jesus teach while they go hungry. The value of what Jesus gives to his people when compared to earthly goods or earthly sustenance, is much greater. He gives us something lasting, something eternal. And Luke has been reminding uh, reminding us of this week after week as we have gone through his gospel. The exodus that Jesus brings will not be like the last, for he will lead his people out of sin and death and eternal condemnation. The twelve play an important role in this passage. We see that uh, from last week's passage, where they sort of get their trial run, the, tr- the training wheels have begun to come off, the twelve play an important role. Uh, Jesus suggests that it should be the apostles who feed them. You give them something to eat, he says. There's more than a hint of sarcasm in their response. They know that there is not nearly enough food. They say, perhaps we should go and buy food for everyone here, as if to prove to Jesus that his idea is crazy. They sound a bit like the exasperated wife whose husband always seems to invite too many people over for Sunday dinner after church. But what Jesus does teaches the apostles that one day they will give true bread and true drink to the world. And it will be not by their own power, it will be the power by the power of their Savior. 
So Jesus tells the apostles to have these people sit in groups of 50 or more. There are 5,000 men here, so if we count the women and the children, the number is likely much greater. Of course, most of us know this story very well. All of the food is not nearly enough to feed everyone. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus does something with the food which we must notice and which he will do again. It's there in verse 16. He does four things. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. And he gives it to his apostles, to the twelve, so that they can distribute it amongst the people. And that's significant because it was Jesus who suggested to the apostles, no, you feed everyone. You give them something to eat. And through the the grace and the power of Jesus, he brings this about. It is the apostles who end up giving the food to the people. And again, this is pointing us forward to what Luke is going to show us in the book of Acts, what happens in the early church, that when the apostles are trusting not in their own power, but in the power of the Savior, they will give true food, spiritual food, and spiritual drink to a world that is in need of it. There are leftovers, aren't there? Twelve basketfuls, which again is not insignificant. Twelve is a number in the Bible, which means completeness. So of all that is left over, there is something complete, not lacking at all. And also, I think, the number 12 connects us to the idea of the apostles playing an important role in this meal. Once they begin their ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God throughout the world, if they rest upon the power of their Savior, if they trust in the storehouses of grace, of the grace of the triune God, they will never run out. So I've been leading us down this path already, but... What's important to understand about the feeding of the 5,000 is that there is so much more going on than filling hungry stomachs with food. There are all these themes converging, aren't there? The new Israel, the true Israel, the, the new and the better exodus, God's people in the wilderness, all are showing us something about who Jesus is. Is he a prophet? In the Old Testament, Elisha fed 100 men with bread that should not nearly have been enough. But Elisha fed 100 men. Jesus is feeding 5,000. The grand scale of the miracle is showing us, it's testifying that Jesus is, yes, a prophet, but he is greater than a prophet. He is greater than the greatest prophet. And while feeding the people materially and physically, he feeds them spiritually as well. Luke is leading us into that conclusion by the way that this meal The feeding of the 5,000 is tied to other meals in the Gospel of Luke as Jesus takes and blesses and breaks and gives and he gives. He does those four things exactly in that way in chapter 22 in the account of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper account where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He also does the same thing in chapter 24 when he meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. As Jesus takes and blesses and breaks and gives, he testifies to to who he is. Just like at a dinner or a banquet when you sit down with someone and you leave with a greater sense of who they are. After you share a meal with someone, you leave feeling like you know them better. 
So Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, makes himself known around a table with food and drink. That's why this theme of eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord is so important. In the Old Testament, this is a recurring theme in the book of Deuteronomy, that Israel begins to know their God, wandering through the wilderness as they're eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord. Jesus condescends to our human frailty in this account. He communicates who he is to the people through these visible means of the bread and the fish. God delights to meet our physical needs, but he ultimately is painting a picture of how Jesus is the life and the spiritual sustenance that brings true and lasting satisfaction. This is what Jesus is doing in these miracles of provision, showing us that the the kind of needs that he meets are ultimate needs. There's a long discourse about this in John chapter 6, where Jesus is speaking to the Israelites, and he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is why the miracles of Jesus are not ends in themselves. It's why whenever the gospel writers specifically tell us about somebody that Jesus heals from a disease or an affliction, they go to great lengths and have great care to tell us about the belief, the faith of those whom Jesus heals. Because in the Gospel of John, what do we read? Whoever believes in me shall never hunger or thirst. Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but... They died. But whoever believes in me will be given true food, the bread of life. We read in verse 17 that everyone was satisfied, satisfied and filled. That same word is used of God in Psalm 107. Again, showing us, connecting these dots for us that what is testified of God in the Old Testament Jesus then does in his earthly ministry. Psalm 107 verse 9 says this, that God has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Jesus is showing us that he is the one who is the true bread of life, the bread from heaven. The Bible uses this image over and over and over again, this idea of nourishing This idea of a body that needs to be filled with nutrition so that it can continue to operate rightly. It's that image that we need to start to get into our minds and our hearts about what it means to be in relationship to the God of Scripture, the King of heaven and of earth. It is God who fills us. It is only He who can satisfy the longings of our souls. I think I've shared this story before, but... At one of the churches where uh, Michelle and I uh, had served and were, were pleasured to be a part of, I had the, the opportunity to share a lunch with an, an elderly gentleman. And he was telling me kind of about his, his longtime history of this church. And as we were sharing this meal, getting to know one another better as we shared a meal, 
he told me that on, on Sundays, he and his wife go to church together. And, uh, and then he sort of makes his way to the fellowship hall. This was a, a pretty big church. There were you know, hundreds and hundreds of people there every Sunday. And so you could kind of get lost in the, the, the large crowds. He would go to the fellowship hall and, and grab a cup of coffee. And he would just try to find somebody to have a nice conversation with. And he said that he did this because he had been a Christian for so long. And he had been a part of that church for so long that he had heard every sermon before. There was nothing else that he could gain by sitting and listening to sermons. He had heard them all throughout his life. And of course that's not true, but suppose hypothetically it were true. Suppose he had heard every sermon before, and suppose he had learned everything that he could learn before. If I were quick-witted, which of course I'm not, I always think of the proper response four hours later, right? I don't know if any of you have that problem. You go through a conversation in your mind, and later in the day you say, ah, that's what I should have said, right? And I'm not quick-witted, but if I were, I would have said something like this. You know, it's interesting that I would bet your wife has about 15 to 20 meals that are in her repertoire that she uh, makes and prepares on a routine basis. And I'll bet you that you've probably had all of those meals about 500 times in your life together. They've been, been married for many, 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 many years. And this week, when she prepares one of those meals, at dinner time, I bet I would find you coming to the dinner table, even though you've had that meal so many times before. And I bet I would find you taking part in that meal and being thankful for that meal and feeling refreshed and filled and satisfied and all that it had done for you. The point of that is this. Even if we've heard it all before or think that we've heard it all before. We need to be fed God's word over and over and over again because in God's word, Christ becomes the nourishment of our souls. The only food for our souls is Jesus Christ. Just because you've eaten bread before doesn't mean you won't need it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And this is the picture of the Christian life that you need to cultivate in your mind and in your heart. According to our own achievement, we come to God as hungry beggars. But according to who and what Christ is, we come together as privileged sons and daughters in God's family, given a seat at his banqueting table of grace. It feels pretty good, doesn't it, when you have a seat at a table reserved for you, whether your name plate be on there or you just see somebody who saved an empty seat right next to them so that you would have a place to sit. It feels pretty good to have a place reserved at the table for you. And God has reserved a table for you in His grace and what His Son has done in Jesus Christ. This is what we must learn. We must learn the extent to which we need to be fed with the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, which he shows us that that is who he is in this miracle. Yes, he's attending to the physical needs of the people, but he is showing us so much more. Part of spiritual growth in the Christian life is just growing and learning how much you need a repeated feasting on the bread of life. When we know and begin to understand more and more how much we need Jesus Christ, Doesn't it make sense that we would be eager to come once again 
to feast at the table of God. That we would be eager to come and be fed the only true food for our souls. As I said, this miracle bears strong resemblance to a couple others in Luke. Specifically, probably most specifically, in chapter 24 when Jesus uh, meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There's this beautiful expression in that story as Jesus sits down and shares a meal with these two men who are so upset that Jesus has been crucified. And of course, Jesus has now been resurrected and he is with them, but they are not aware that it's him. And there's this beautiful expression that says, He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And something similar happens in this account. Because through this miracle, Peter is able to confess who Jesus is with true faith. This miracle testifies to who Jesus is, and then Peter is then able to respond in true faith. We read in verse 18 that the twelve have finally gotten a little bit of this rest that they have wanted. Jesus is praying, which he often does at turning points in the gospel, and he turns to the twelve and he says, who do the crowd say that I am? And they give him the the stock answer at this point, right? The same answer that was given to Herod. Some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Other people say one of the prophets from long ago. Jesus turns the question on them. says, who do you say that I am? The Christ of God, Peter answers. There's a bit of of a feeling that we should have of finally, right? We've been in on who Jesus is since before he was born. But no human being has confessed with their mouth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We've heard it from angels. We have not heard it from the mouth of anyone who has been following Jesus. And the closeness of this account to the feeding of the 5,000 shows us that Peter has been given the grace to confess that Jesus is the Christ through that miracle. Jesus made himself known in the breaking of the bread. This was not by Peter's strength. It was not by his ability to discern who Jesus was. His eyes had been opened by grace. But what we read next is interesting because it's a bit of a rebuke, isn't it? In verse 21, Jesus strictly charges them, do not share this with anyone. And he's not telling Peter that he was wrong. Peter has, of course, confessed the truth. But Jesus is teaching the twelve something about the Messiah that is not something that they would have expected. Yes, the Messiah is to be king. Yes, the Messiah is to sit on a throne and reign and rule. But as we saw last week, his road to the glory of his kingship is not one that will be easy. Glory will be preceded by three things that we read in verse 22. He must suffer. He must be rejected by the leaders of Israel. And he must ultimately be killed. The expectations of the Messiah, for most people who were in Israel, is that this Messiah would not suffer. He would vanquish his enemies. Is that he would not be rejected, but that he would be accepted and adored. Loved as much as King David. And not that he would be killed, but that he would live long and reign over God's people. But of course... The nature of the salvation that Jesus gives, what we have been seeing over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, is that in order to save his people from their sins, in order to save 
them from the invisible enemies of condemnation and death. All of that requires a different path, an unexpected path, one that perhaps would not initially have made sense to the apostles. Jesus suffers so that his people will not have to suffer eternally. Jesus will be rejected by his own people so that the message of the gospel can be proclaimed throughout all the world and he can be the savior of the world to all those who believe. He will die so that we might live. Though he was the eternal son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, he did not come down to earth to serve his own ends. Jesus had an eternal glory with the Father and the Spirit before the world ever was. But he came down, he condescended to our human frailty to make himself known to his people. In his teaching, in his healing, in the breaking of the bread, God the Son living and dying for us. For us. He is the true Messiah because he fills us. He satisfies the longing of our souls with his life and his blessing and his salvation. The more we comprehend that, the goodness of the gospel, the more we comprehend that by grace and in union with Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we increase in love and wonder and adoration of our Savior, the more we grow in devotion to our triune God. Just like in this account, just like with the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of the gospel, Jesus makes himself known to us more and more each time we break the bread of life together. The Lord's Supper, communion, is that means of grace whereby we are sustained for the journey of our lives, where we are given grace to know him more and more, where God summons us to love and to devote ourselves to him. Communion is also the visual representation of what happens when God's word is proclaimed, when it's preached. As the gospel is set before the people of God, we are sustained in grace. We are given a diet of grace that we so need week after week after week, the bread of life. When we hear the gospel, we realize that as God has made room for us at his table, as he has shown us divine hospitality in giving us the bread of life, so too we ought to show forth this grace, that we ought to make room for others in our own lives. God has made room for us. We ought to make room for others. God has welcomed us. We ought to welcome others. And he gives us an opportunity to live out his grace, to show it forth, to show a hospitality and love that testifies of this salvation. As the Holy Spirit increases our faith, may we increase in love and hospitality to those around us, to a world that so needs the only one who fills and satisfies, the bread of heaven, the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and your gospel, for what he does in feeding us and filling us and satisfying us with every longing that we have. We praise you for sending him to die, to live for us. May that humble us. May that cause us to extend grace always. We praise you and we thank you as the eternal God. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.